The views and opinions expressed by the guests on the following program do not necessarily represent those of Mark Radio, The Shepherd, or its advertisers. From the studios of The Shepherd Radio Network, it's Afternoons with Mike. This next hour is all about our walk with Jesus with local pastors, newsmakers, people who are making a difference for the gospel. Now, here is your host, Mike Gilland. Happy Wednesday, everyone. Welcome back to my program, Afternoons with Mike, here on The Shepherd. We have another great group of interviews for you today. I was able to capture them all down at the D6 conference. I was able to be set up right in the middle of the expo floor with uh, our entire rig, and it was so much fun. Now, on today's program, we've got Yancey, an extraordinary young lady, a musician, songwriter. Her music has been featured on VBS materials around the world. Also, Justin Woods, John Weaver, and Chris Sasser. They're all coming up. Right now, without further ado, let's join my interview with Yancey. What a treat it is for me to have Yancey here. You have a last name, but everyone in the world knows you as Yancey. That's what I use for my music, just my first name. <laughs> you know, I met you through your music I, before, long before ever getting to meet you in person. Uh, your music has touched the lives and hearts. I know you must hear this all the time, but kids have grown up listening to Yancey do Vacation Bible School songs, mm-hmm. and they weren't just little ditties those were well produced well written and amazingly gifts of god to our children thank you for that you're so welcome i appreciate you saying it it's very kind how did you get started off in all this yeah so uh this fall actually is 25 years of me doing music so i started as a senior in high school going out doing concerts for uh, a lot of youth ministries and college ministries and stuff back in the day and just going to Nashville writing CCM songs and had some of those recorded by Avalon and Jackie Velasquez and stuff and then um, always grew up in the church I'm a preacher's kid so obviously because of my love for music I'd always been involved in worship Mm kind of got more involved in leading worship within our church overseeing worship teams directing the worship bands for just a lot of different age groups and ministries in our church And somewhere in the midst of kind of doing that, had this other opportunity to start writing a theme song for a summer camp program um, for a number of years. And so that's kind of what made me start taking some steps into doing kids music. Um, I kind of say it's kind of like God had me take a bunch of easy yeses, (laughs) you (laughs) know, before he kind of made it clear to me that like, hey, this is the area that I want you to focus on. So um, kind of walked that out. I guess over the course of a couple years and really by the time uh, 2008 started, I knew that God was making it very clear and obvious that kids and families were just the area that he wanted me to focus on with my music. And so been focused on kids and making music for them and worship resources that churches can use in their children's ministry programs. So you start since. you start off with a song that you've written for a camp mm-hmm. and then you find yourself at some point being really the voice of standard publishing for uh, all of their v- vacation Bible school materials. Right. So that had to be a big uh, a big leap, if you will. Yeah, you know, it was it was fun. I I'd, I'd made a a handful of other kids records at that point. 
um, that the standard publishing VBS came in the picture. And that was kind of one of those like just total God things. Like it wasn't anything I was seeking out or, you know, it's not like I was knocking on doors of VBS publishers going, Hey, let's do a partnership here with the music. They just came and asked me and it was a wonderful thing to get to be a part of and just write specific songs for their curriculum. You know, I try to, um, there's a lot of kids' music out there that kind of sounds like nails on the chalkboard, mm-hmm. you know? It's oh, yeah. Just being lame and hokey and not great. And um, I try really hard just to make great music and be conscious of my arrangement and the lyrics within my songs to make sure that it's something age-appropriate for whatever age child that particular thing is geared for. But at the end of the day, I'm, I'm still trying to make great music. So, and you know, what I love about it is I observed it and as I studied it and learned it for my own uh, groups that we led, especially at Abundant Grace in Gainesville, Florida, uh, all of our uh, members up there that are in Gainesville hearing this will know that Yancey Music played in our church for years. And what I loved about it was it, it, it was like the entire package, Yancey. You had great lyrics. So mm-hmm. these are the things that when I think back as a, uh, as a musician myself, I think this is a difficult thing to pull off. You've got great lyrics. Mm-hmm. You've got great music. And it, then you have to add that trick of recording that great music, uh, which in a memorable theme, a, yeah. a melody that people, the kids will just catch on to. Right. Because these kids, they learn it. You put out those videos, those training videos mm-hmm. with the, the the kids showing the hand motions and all the things that go right. along with that. But then you also did this thing of a theme every year. It would be set in a... A particular type of theme right so did you just get away for a week or something to write all these songs uh diff- different things would happen different years uh, the very first year i did it for them it was um we probably had started having the conversations later than we should have so time was of the essence i literally wrote 10 songs inside of one week wow. which is Nuts, And I had like a six-week-old baby (laughs) at the time, too, which is just one of those you you realize, okay, the Lord empowered and strengthened me to pull that off because I'm not sure that's something I really could have done in my own strength. Um, But the other years, you know, I would find out kind of the theme of what it was going to be kind of early on. So that at least would help my brain start. I kind of liken it to, it's like a crock pot, you know. It's kind of like a stew Stews, that's on a yeah, low simmer. Simmers. Yeah, and so, you know, I'd kind of find out that theme and kind of maybe know the overall it's about this this year, which would just allow my brain to just kind of wander and start imagining uh, some ideas. And so that way, you know, fast forward a couple months down the road or whatever when it kind of got, serious I probably would spend about probably more like about a month in the writing process you know between getting approvals and making any edits and all of that kind of stuff so writing and and being approved to start recording would be about a month and then we would spend another month working on the audio and probably about another month working on video stuff. So we're, we're, it was a big thing every year. Did you record in Nashville? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I live in Nashville, Tennessee. So I do all my mm-hmm. recording there in and East Nashville. And session players or yeah. do you have your own yeah. your own band? Then? Pretty much session players. I've got a, a bunch of different guys and players that have 
played on my music throughout the years. And so, you know. Well, I mean, it really is. There is this thing called the Nashville sound. That, yeah. and, and that's why your music was so good because it was it was as good as yeah. what you hear on country radio or Thank pop you. radio or anything at all. It was just that good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I'm someone that definitely likes excellence and, you know, I, I don't want to do it unless I'm doing it right. So uh, I appreciate that. And again, the, the, the word excellence is a perfect word because that's the way all of us felt. And I, I, I remember the very first time I ever heard one of those titles. Uh, I can't remember. It. it seems like it might be the underwater theme mm-hmm. year. Okay, Deep Sea Discovery. Deep, yes, Deep Sea Discovery. <laughs> I remember some of those songs were so creative mm. in the way that they brought to life the illustrations yeah. that would be used by the actors on the stage for the kids. And yeah. again, the kids would get up and they would do all these hand motions. That was one of the finest memories that I have of working with children in uh, VBS is watching them learn your songs. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah, I really mean it. So what's ahead for you now? Yeah, so, you know, uh, I make a lot of music for kids. I have a series for younger children called Little Praise Party. Um, I do a series uh, geared more for preteen and elementary um, called Kid Men Worship. And so kind of a mixture of new music. I always have videos that go along with those songs and just making um, resources available to churches to use, you know, Mm -hmm. in their weekly programs, weekly Sunday morning children's church uh, whatever that might look like to use my songs as part of the worship time there. Um, I won a Dove Award this past year, actually. Congratulations. For, thank you for Children's Album of the Year for a project in that series, um, Little Praise Party, that's called Ready, Set, Go. And so that was exciting. I'm getting ready to release another bundle of those songs, actually, coming up this week. And that, that bundle's called Out of This World. Also, my little praise party series. And then this year, too, just a few months back, I released a book um, called Sweet Sound, The Power of Discipling Kids in Worship. And it's just something I wrote specifically for church leaders. But I've had, you know, quite a few moms that have read it as well, just saying this is going to shift how I use worship within our family or Mm -hmm. in some homeschool mom situations. This is going to change how I teach my kids to worship even as part of school and some things that we're doing and so I I believe the message is definitely something that God gave me to give this world and just pray that it will open the eyes of all who read it or listen to the audiobook to just understand the power that is in kids worship you know even since you started doing all this kid stuff music and writing and VBS I mean the world has changed a lot Mm -hmm. right under our feet Uh, how are you seeing uh, the, the kids in terms of their responsiveness to these kinds of music right now. It seems like it, more than ever before, they need the truth that you yeah. bring through these songs. Yeah, I mean, they they respond really amazing. I think for me, you know, even when I reflect on my own life, there's so many songs that I can remember listening to as a kid, driving around town, running errands in my mom's minivan, Um where God's truth was locked away in my heart and my spirit through those songs. You know, many of them, I haven't listened to the the recording of that song in 25, 30 plus years, but someone can say something or quote a scripture in church 
that triggers that memory and that song starts replaying in my mind. That's the wonder of music. It isn't is. It? It's an amazing thing. And yeah. so that's what, you know, excites me and encourages me because I realize it's not just about singing a song on Sunday. Like you're planting and locking away truths in the hearts of these kids that will be with them literally for decades to come. And so I think it's important for all of us whether we're parents, grandparents listening, church leaders listening, just to be intentional and realize, hey, the message that's in the songs that you're pushing play on, what the praise that you're putting on their lips to sing, you're planning that in there. You're sealing it in their hearts and spirits. And it's going to be something that will help them in the days to come. And so um, I think it's it's so important. At years back, I don't know if you remember the rock band DeGarmo and Key. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Okay, so Christian rock band from the 80s. Dana and, Key, yeah. Yes, and mm-hmm. when, in particular, when Dana Key passed away, um, at the time, as when everybody was blogging, and <laughs> a couple friends of mine had written blog posts just about the impact of DeGarmo and Key's music um, on their life. And, and I found it so interesting reading those posts because they all would say the same thing something to the effect of their music shaped my theology. And I remember for me, it was kind of this like aha moment reading those posts and just going, Hmm, I don't know that a lot of songwriters in Nashville mm-hmm. <laughs> are thinking about that as they're writing a song. That's like, I don't a know heavy that, responsibility. Yes, I, like, right I don't there. know that that is uh, so many of even those making Christian music, that that's their mental state is realizing I've got to treat this with tender, precious care because I am shaping someone's theology of what they're going to know and believe and learn about who God is. And so for me, I think it just made me buckle, you know, buckle my straps and and put my foot down and just become even more intentional and just realize that those words that I put to Melody have weight. And so let's let's give them something that's going to actually be manna. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to get them through yeah. for their life. That's worth the shaping, if you will, yeah. of, of a life. That's really great. A yeah. couple of quick questions. What would be your favorite song that you've ever oh, been a part goodness. of? Do you have one? It's so hard to narrow it down to just one. Um, I for sure have a handful of favorites. Uh, but I think, I mean, oh, it's... <laughs> It's so hard. It's too hard. I mean, Hosanna Rock is obviously really special. Super Wonderful is one that I I knew I I knew when I wrote it. I I I thought highly of it. It's so interesting because it took a few years for it to really latch on, and now like that's like one of my most requested songs and Mm -hmm. everybody's favorite. But it's just weird because it took a few years before it got there. But. yeah, those are those are really special. You know, I know it's funny. I, w- I was actually listening to that Deep Sea Discovery VBS project yesterday. I'd pulled it up to share a link to someone and then went back and listened. There's a send me from that. Oh, yeah. I really like oh, that yeah. one. Yeah. And there's another song on that called Always Be There. That probably is one of my my favorites as just far as how it all sounds. You know, there's certain things you're like as a songwriter, like, wow. <laughs> well, you know, you you are a songwriter, and songwriters look for this mysterious hook yeah. that's got to grab. And that's the thing about that whole project. Mm-hmm. The first time I heard Deep Sea Discovery, it was like full of hooks. E- yeah. Every song seemingly had its own way of grabbing your heart 
and grabbing the thoughts of these kids. But then the other, the other question I, I had to ask you this, did you have as much fun as it looked like you did when you were doing the videos for Oh, those? sure, sure. Yeah, you always have fun. You're always exhausted by the end of a, a video <laughs> shoot or photo Such shoot. energy. Yeah. It was amazing. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's super fun. I'm, I'm grateful. Um, there's a, oh, you know what? There's another song on some of the newer Little Praise Party stuff that I wrote called The Opposite Song. That's another one of my, I, I put it high in my list of favorites. So. That's uh, something to check out. You'll have to check it out. Now, how, you've got a website, so tell mm -hmm. people how you can, uh, how they can listen. Yeah, yancynotnancy.com. Obviously, any of the streaming platforms out there, whether you do Spotify or Apple Music or Amazon or Pandora or YouTube or whatever, you can find me. Just type in Yancy, Y-A-N-C-Y. Um, on social media, you can follow me at yancynotnancy. So Instagram, Twitter, Yancey, Facebook, not Nancy. YouTube, all those places. So I would love for you to find my music, play it for your family, and, and just have a blast while you do it. Well, I thank you for dropping by and talking to me today. This has been a lot of fun. You bet. Thanks for having me. Uh, I've got with me today Justin Woods. He is the Director of Digital Distribution. Tell our listeners, if you will, uh, what the Hope Channel does and what your goals would be. Yeah, Hope Channel International is a group of, a global group of uh, television uh, channels and production centers around the world. Uh, currently, we are at 71 channels around the world. Each one creates content in its own local cultural context and language. So, it, it, you know, we're not just dubbing content from the U.S. and sending it around the world. It's all culturally contextualized and in more than 80 languages now. Isn't that something? And technology has made all of this possible and brought this to be. Yeah. Uh, because you guys are not on traditional what would have been in the uh, other days, earlier days. You're not on the air, so to speak. But you're coming through what are functional Internet lines mm -hmm. and, and connecting to people's challenges like Roku, for example. Yeah. You know, we started life as a satellite network, and uh, we got onto DirecTV. We're on uh, DirecTV channel 368. But uh, a few years ago, we really started pushing the digital side, so we have a, a suite of apps that you can watch all of our content across Roku, Apple TV, Amazon Fire TV, all the you know, iPhone, iPad. Yeah, I was going to say, not even necessarily connected to a television. Exactly, yeah. You can watch it right on a mobile device. And that's the whole concept of that is, it really is mind-boggling when you think of the endless number of sources. And that can be a good thing, and that, as we know, can also be a bad thing. Right. But when you have people like you guys, you're putting out the hope that is found in the gospel. Absolutely. And that is what you're wanting to do, and that's how you do it. Who do you work with right now? Who are some of the people? I know you're here representing Heroes, for one. Right. Yeah, so Heroes is, uh, is a big push that we've got. It's a Bible trivia video game. That is Justin Woods, and we are up against a break. We'll be back with Justin coming up in just a moment on The Shepherd. Welcome back to Afternoons with Mike here on The Shepherd. Let's continue my interview right now with Justin Woods from the Hope Channel. We saw a big need uh, in the, the market, so to speak. We're not monetizing the game at all. But uh, we saw a need for something that will 
help connect young people with the Bible and with the Word. And, you know, there are, there are Bible trivia video games out there that you can play on your mobile devices. Bible Heroes video game is kind of in the Marvel superhero motif. You know, Jesus is just ripped and <laughs> Samson is just this hulk of a guy. And uh, so you play through um, each of the heroes asks you questions about their life and you answer it's multiple choice and uh, the more questions you get right the better time you do um, the better your score so it's uh, really interesting engaging you can uh, earn earn uh, super superpowers that we call effects like the Jesus effect will uh, show you the right answer show you the way the um, Abraham effect will divide the right answers basically 50-50 so that uh, you have a better chance of getting it right. So it's a really interesting, compelling game. It sounds like a lot of fun. And how can people learn more about this? If you go to BibleHeroesTrivia.org. BibleHeroesTrivia.org. Now going back for a moment to the Hope Channel, uh, what are you guys hoping to have happen for the balance of 2022? Well, we, um, we've got a lot going on. We're uh, working on a online Bible study uh, platform that will enable people to not just go through a Bible study with us, but to actually be mentored through that process by an actual uh, person, church member in a church that is physically near to them so that actual relationships are being formed. And when the time is right this person who is mentoring them could actually invite them to come to church or, you know, to a meal, something so that we're actually loving people into the church and not just mm-hmm. trying to fill their heads with doctrine. And, and not just offering them what would be basically programming from your channel. Right. I mean, that's really the big deal. It's This is the, the real gospel, after all, that we're talking about. And the Lord has called the real church. And I'm, I'm just grateful that there are people like you, man, that are out there developing what would be new tools that are going to be used by the kingdom of God and in the kingdom. Well, praise God. We're just trying to be tools in his hands. That's awesome. Well, Justin, thank you so much. Justin Woods, again, the director of digital distribution for the Hope Channel here representing heroes. Check them out and your website, Justin. HopeTV.org or for the uh, Bible video game, HeroesBibleTrivia.org. All right. One of the attendees here at the D6 is John Weaver, who's with me right now. Welcome, John. Mike, thanks for having me. Now, you're a YWAM guy. I have loved this ministry for years. Mm-hmm. We're with YWAM, which is, means Youth with a Mission, my wife and five children. And it's a privilege. It's a global mission, as you know, a privilege to be involved in this mission to finish the Great Commission, as Jesus commanded us. Now, that's what you're doing. And in fact, that's what you've done for many years in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. You lived in Afghanistan. Yes. And uh, how long ago did you come back to the U.S.? We moved back to the U.S. a few years ago. I kind of redefined my role, more like a coach and trainer for local church planners in that part of the world. I moved over to Central Asia in 1998. I've been involved in Muslim ministry for about 30 years, actually. And um, most of that time was uh, inside Afghanistan, and I met my wife there. We got married there. We had this big public Christ-centered wedding and had four kids while we were there. And then circumstances changed as they do. There's seasons of life and ministry, and we realized we should be 
not so much in an apostolic pioneering role, but more of an empowering and equipping type of role. And so now we're based here in the States. Now, while you were there, tell us what it was like living in the culture of Afghanistan as basically someone that believes in Jesus. That Mm -hmm. automatically put you at a minority without a doubt. Yeah, well, Mike, the listeners can't see me, but I've got a long beard on. (laughs) And if I would wear the local dress, and of course I spoke, I speak some of the languages that are spoken in the Central Asian countries. So at times they didn't think I was an American. Mm -hmm. Maybe they thought I was from a different part of their country or part of the region of the world, but they didn't think, you know, Western, meaning he's from America, because they had no frame of reference. When I first went to Afghanistan before uh, September 11th, where I lived, there, there were no other Americans. So they didn't have a context of that. And then you mentioned about being a follower of Jesus. Because of living out my faith, and here we're at the D6 conference where we talk about, you know, here people of God, the Lord our God is one, and we love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. When I would talk about my love for God and and put into practice my faith in a culturally appropriate way, similar to what I saw my Afghan you know, friends doing, they thought I was a strange kind of Muslim, meaning yeah. they, they didn't, I could tell them I was a follower of Jesus, but they didn't have a peg in their mind to hang that. They really didn't know what that meant, but they just saw he's a God-fearing person. Sometimes they would even say I was a Muslim, a better Muslim than them because of, again, because of this D6 lifestyle. But of course, over time, they had some frame of reference to realize, wait a second, he does believe in God. He does read the holy books. You know, he fasts and prays like we do, but he really is a follower of Jesus. And they began to realize some of those differences. You've really given us something that I think is valuable, uh, an expression that says they didn't have a peg to hang that thought on. Mm-hmm. I like that. And, and really, that's exactly true. I mean, we're supposed to live lives that are noticed in a good way, mm-hmm. not in a bad way, not being uh, different for different sake, but uh, lives that reflect the mm-hmm. value of Jesus, mm-hmm. the value of the gospel. And that's really what those people, even though they did not have a peg to hang it on, mm-hmm. they saw what is b- basically biblical value. Yes. And it's kind of what Jesus said, let your light so shine before men, yeah. before others, that they might see your good works. So they saw our lifestyle. It's Christ in us. It's not nothing, not, nothing good mm-hmm. in us. You know what I'm saying? I mean, God's made us in his image. There's value in human life, but you know, only good in us is Christ in us, the spirit of God working through us. But we were practically serving the people. You know, Jesus said, if they're hungry, you feed them. If they're naked, you clothe them. If they're So we, doing these good works and with this Christ-centered lifestyle, it became attracted to them, even though they didn't have a peg to, like you said, they didn't have a yeah, peg to. Yeah. And so that became the initial witness of the gospel was our life, uh, walking with God, living that out in their language and in their culture, and then, of course, serving them, you know, in practical, tangible ways, showing them God's love and compassion. And then it would go from there because they're curious people as Muslims and uh, they're God-fearing people. They have a monotheistic worldview. So I would have opportunities every day to talk about my faith because they would ask questions of spiritually, you know, spiritual questions. It's really interesting to think about that, that so many and i think the you know the news that comes to most people in america what they see leaves with a a position that every muslim that is in afghanistan is a radical mm. and that is not the case no mike that's not the case so i, I i've written three books and in all three of them i i i have stories that would remind readers 
that some of my best friends are Muslims. I've had my life saved several times by Muslims. Mm-hmm. I mean, left for dead, and Muslims would have come and, you know, and, and saved me. These were friends. And so, no, not all Muslims are terrorists, just like not all Americans were Christians. So they have their same stereotypical thoughts when they look at the West, especially the United States. They just assume every mm-hmm. American's yeah. a Christian because we say we're a Christian nation and God we trust. And you know what I'm saying? So in the, in the reciprocal way, no, we can't say every Afghan you know, is a terrorist, every Muslim's a terrorist. No, that's not the case at all. Some of my best friends, just normal, down-to-earth friends, you know what I'm saying? Normal guys, just like any friend in Texas or in Virginia or North Carolina or any place that I've lived, these are just normal human beings created in the image of God. God loves them. God's pursuing them. And Mike, one of the most fascinating things in our experience is there are Muslims that are coming to Christ every day. It's one of the most amazing phenomena. I write about that in the, in the books as well, that you could Google, on, go on Amazon, Google John Weaver, Inside Afghanistan, A Flame on the Front Line. The third book is about our wedding called Najiba, a love story from Afghanistan. And we write about these stories of how God's at work among Muslims. And it's a fascinating, fascinating piece of history. Now, you mentioned that you went over there in the late 90s, mm-hmm. right? And so that means you were there at 9-11. Yes. What was that like? Yeah, I was there on 9-11. Like I said, and I was in the northern part of the country. There were where I lived, a few foreigners, very, very few. There were other humanitarian workers scattered throughout the country. Um, It was quite an overwhelming experience because I was there serving the people. So when I hear of 9-11, I hear about it on a radio. Mm -hmm. Not the shepherd's radio, but I hear about (laughs) it it on a radio because we didn't have television at that time, right? And we were limited in our technology. I didn't have a cell phone. All I had was a CB radio. So I get a message that I'm supposed to listen to you know, CNN or BBC, you know, or the Voice of America, some, you know, international radio program to find out what's happened. So when I hear of 9-11 and the attacks, it was hard to imagine it because I couldn't see anything. Uh, But I instantly in my heart knew there's a bigger narrative here. And I write a whole chapter about this in the book Inside Afghanistan that on September the 9th, two Al-Qaeda journalists, two Al-Qaeda men disguised as journalists, they did a suicide bombing attack at the main general's house and killed General Massoud. Some of the listeners would know, even back in the Soviet era years ago, this line of the Panjshir, they called him. He was a general, General Massoud, and he was killed in a suicide attack on September the 9th. And when we in the country knew of that, we knew, wait a second, something's going on. If they can kill this general, now the Taliban's going to take over the whole country. Well, ironically, September 11th happens, and then the aftermath of that is America and the international coalition is now going to come in here, you know what I'm saying, and declare Mm -hmm. war against terrorism. Right. So it became interesting to figure out, okay, what does all of this mean? But as an American, we had Muslim friends that would come and say, we're sorry for what happens. You know, that doesn't represent our faith. You know, we don't believe in that. That, that That was evil. That was wrong. You know what I'm saying? That wasn't really what the spirit of Islam you know, is. And uh, again, echoing, not all Muslims were terrorists, but because I was there during the aftermath of that, Mike, I had opportunity after opportunity to share my faith, to talk about God. And that's actually, we actually saw some breakthroughs in the events after 9-11 in terms of openness among our Muslim friends. So when you are here at D6 and you're sharing stories about Afghanistan, about Muslims uh, and the outreach, and they hear that people here in the U.S. hear 
about this revival that mm. is happening among the Muslim right now. What are reactions that you see? Well, they're very encouraged. I mean, they're very encouraged and inspired. It's also can be challenging at times because, you know, the theme this year is reset. And my talk tonight will be about adjustments from John 15. Jesus is the vine and, you know, we're the branches and he prunes us. And a practical way of describing that is we make adjustments, you know what I'm saying, in life. Mm -hmm. And uh, halftime adjustments, so we just make some changes or tweaks. And so in talking about how and why Muslims are coming to Christ, listeners are encouraged. But we see in that process some possible adjustments that we might need to make even in our own ministry. Because if you're in North America or in the United States, it's a post-Christian context. It's mm -hmm. no People aren't coming from a Judeo-Christian worldview anymore. So they're like the people you mentioned earlier. They don't have the pegs of mm -hmm. Christmas. Yeah. Well, they know yeah. about they know some things, but they don't have as many pegs. They don't know as much as they think they know. And they don't know as much <laughs> as they think they know. But, That's you know, right. back in the 80s, I heard the gospel at a Billy Graham crusade. Uh, well, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. You know what I'm saying? My parents are divorced. I love my parents, but I didn't grow up in a Christian context. But I still understood Christmas when... You know what I'm saying? When they mentioned it, I still understood John 3:16 and Easter, the death, and when they mentioned it, even though I didn't come from that type of mm -hmm. a Judeo-Christian uh, background. And so, talking about how and why Muslims are coming to Christ, it's some of the most encouraging, inspiring news that God is pursuing them, even in dangerous, difficult places. But it's also a reminder to us we might need to make some adjustments because it's likely, it could be likely that the context in Afghanistan has some more similarities here to the West, more than we would be willing to admit because mm. we're no longer coming from a Judeo-Christian background. That is well said. And we also know that a lot of the mindset of that area, just in uh, sheer numbers in America of the Muslim population, it's growing here. Yes. And it's not staying stagnant at all. It's growing maybe faster than what we realize. Yeah, well, in the events from August 2021, most listeners will be aware of things that they saw on the news. Because the Taliban has taken over Afghanistan, this is just specific to Afghanistan, there are now over 100,000 Afghans who have come to the United States mm -hmm. and through different means. But they're here. We, we can't change that. They're here. And so we, we like to remind people God has set the times and the seasons and the habitations of places that they, they would seek after him because he's not far from any of us. In him, we live and move and have our being. And so one of the unique roles I have now uh, through Youth with the Mission and through Samaritan's Purse and other partners that are here and, and uh, through different networks is going to these what we call diaspora, the scattered locations where Afghans are, you know, here in the United States, whether that be in Virginia or be in Florida or be in Texas or it was in Nashville a few weeks ago. And, and because now there are Afghans that are scattered in the United States and local churches and local ministries are saying, hey, John, people like you, can you come help us, you know, come coach us and come guide us because we've never worked with Muslims. We've never worked with Afghans. We've never been to Afghanistan. So that's a unique role that I have now. We believe God is allowing all this because some of the most unreached people in the world are coming from Muslim countries. Now they're here in our own backyard, our mm. own doorstep. And God's inviting us to reach them with love, to welcome them with love, and to share the gospel with them. Thank you so much for being with us, John. And thank you for what you're doing, both from an educational standpoint, but also just as an evangelist, sharing the gospel 
that's what you do and that's what your organization is all about. So thank you for your example. No, Mike, thank you. And just a reminder to listeners, if they'd like to read more, there's a couple of books. Just Google John Weaver on Amazon, type Inside Afghanistan, and some of them will come up. And thanks so much for having me on the program, Mike. It's great to have you here, John. So appreciate all my guests so far on the program today, Yancey, Justin Woods, and John Weaver. Coming up in segment three, Chris Sasser. This is Afternoons with Mike. With me right now is Chris Sasser. He's the family ministry pastor at Port City Community Church, Wilmington, North Carolina. You got to love North Carolina. Oh my gosh. We got the mountains and we got the beach all yeah. in kind of a five and a half hour stretch. It's beautiful. Well, I don't know if, how it is with residents up there, but people in Florida, we love North Carolina. So that's where we had, I'm originally from Evansville, Indiana, when people want to get away for vacation they go to orlando right so orlando people they don't go to evansville <laughs> they go to north carolina well you know what's interesting is we we have it coming from both ways because we have that but plus we have people who are from up north who typically would come retire in florida yeah and we call them halfbackers halfbackers yeah because now what's starting to happen in communities around downtown wilmington is people are coming down and they're realizing hey this is kind of like florida but not as hot so we're just going to yeah. stay here. So there's a number of communities developing right outside of Wilmington with a bunch of halfbackers. Yeah, you have the beach there. And uh, it, yep. again, you don't have the peninsular weather. That's right. But it's not bad. It's not. And you get all the same hurricanes we do. We do. That's yeah, correct. That's right. Yes. And so you get to enjoy some of those maybe less favorite parts of yes, living in Florida. That's correct. We've definitely had our share of hurricane cleanup over the last number of years. How did you get involved in family ministry? Well, I started originally as a youth pastor uh, in 1992, and uh, I was going to be a one-year intern where the church was going to check me out, and I was going to check them out. It was in Raleigh, North Carolina. And uh, 19 years later, I was still there as a part of that same community. <laughs> it was a Presbyterian church. Uh, and I started in youth ministry, but kind of just the more I was there, the more I realized kind of the, the importance of not just ministering to teenagers. And so got more responsibilities, kind of children's ministry came under my umbrella, started having kids. My wife and I have two kids. They're teenagers now. But just this idea of uh, of ministering not only to, to children and youth, but also to parents. Well, it's a family thing. It's a family thing. That's right. Yeah, it should be. And, uh, you know, it for years, I think a lot of churches, they went the direction of a specialized ministry. Yes, sir. Where it's almost as if they're assuming upon themselves. Yeah. And I had in the uh, a church that I served for a while, there would be parents in there who joined that and assumed that the youth pastor was the person responsible for their kid oh yeah and that that doesn't work no there's a, a guy named chap clark who's uh he's out on the west coast he's kind of one of the family ministry gurus in our country and he said years ago what parents have done is they've subcontracted the spiritual lives of their kids to the church yeah that's exactly what you're describing yeah, exactly. and what what i saw as a youth pastor and then kind of a, a family ministry pastor and just said you know what we, we have got to put more of an emphasis on um, some practical help for parents. Well, whether they have delegated or relegated, they really don't have the option to do either. That's right. Because God looks at those children and Deuteronomy 6, this conference, D6, is really aimed at, at really reminding us all 
that uh, this is a, a family unit, just that's exactly like what you're doing. Yes, sir. So that's correct. I think you're in the right thing, man. It's a lot and, of fun. And you've written books. I've written one book. That's awesome. Well, and I, I didn't aspire necessarily to write a book, and, and I don't over-spiritualize things too much, but this is just a, an idea that God kind of gave me years ago. I'll tell a quick story. So as a young youth pastor, I'd maybe been into it for 10 years or so. Uh, I began to be asked to kind of officiate weddings for kids who were a part of the church. They had come through the youth group. Mm-hmm, they went to really? college. Yep. And, you know, they want the youth pastor to do the wedding. And so, uh, of course, started saying yes to that. And oftentimes I would know at least one of them who had come through youth group and maybe they met their future spouse in college or whatever. Sometimes we knew both of them uh, because we saw in seventh grade they were destined for each other. They just needed to figure it out. But anyway, my wife and I would start this premarital process with them. And they'd, they'd come over to our house for dinner. And we would play this game where we'd say, look, act like you don't know us. Even though we've been walking you know, life together with your family for 10 years or more, act like you don't know us. Tell us your life story, your faith story, and your family story. And I got to tell you, Mike, these, these young adults, these kids would unload on us kind of what, what was going on in them emotionally, just some, some emotional baggage that they had. Some things we knew, some things we didn't know, but, but they just unloaded on us over the course of a few hours. So, of course, the next five sessions of the premarital counseling are helping them unpack that. But I remember I would look at my wife and I would say, it's just so sad that they're carrying so much baggage. And then our kids were super young. I started doing what a lot of parents do. I started asking the question, okay, what are my kids going to be saying when they're in counseling in their 20s? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I just started thinking, do my kids have to have all of this heavy baggage that most of these kids I was talking to, do my kids have to have that? when they get to be in their young adult years, would there be a way for me to maybe pay a little bit more attention and to maybe uh, build like a preventive maintenance plan? It's a really beautiful right? idea. And, and, and I started looking for, okay, where is this idea? Cause I'm thinking surely somebody smarter than me has done this. And as I started looking around for it, it didn't exist. Now, I mean, I'm telling you it doesn't. Right, there, there are industries around unpacking your bags. That's why yeah. we all go to counseling and we should. Um, but as far as kind of a prevent, preventive maintenance idea, they just wasn't there. So I just started writing on it. I uh, had a good friend of mine who has written a couple of books, said, look, just start writing it, see what happens. I did for about a year. I started doing focus groups with college students and young adults. And I would just say, hey, you have baggage. Tell me what it is. And it just like what used to happen in our kitchen with the couples going to marriage was happening with these college students. Start unloading. Unloading on us. And mm-hmm. so basically over the course of time writing it, I identified eight common bags that I feel like kids pack over uh, I say kind of the age of five to 25. There's a lot more than the eight, but this is just what I heard the most. And the other thing is I'm not naive enough to think that we can, anybody can get to their young adult or adult years and not have any emotional baggage. I just want for us as parents who are uniquely positioned to help our kids lighten the load. Like, can we pay attention and do some things along the way that help it just be a little more uh, light for our kids? Because that's yeah. what I want for them. You know, it doesn't seem like it should be all that difficult for uh, parents historically to understand that we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We can learn. We can. We should be learning. Right. But uh, sadly, what you're describing here, Chris, is exactly right. We we have not learned a lot from history on this, and that's really sad when it comes down to being in the church. And obviously, that's why the divorce rate is as high as it is. And if, if you look at other things problems like drug use. Uh, Sadly, there are in many churches around the country, kids that are are dealing with addictions to drugs. Absolutely. And it's all, it's tied into this thing. Sure. Of just 
kind of assuming that everything is okay, yeah. I think a lot of parents aren't digging the way they need to dig. Well, and, and here's what I know. So I've, I've been able to do this as a parenting seminar in a number of different settings at churches and other places. And, and the moment I begin to talk about this, you, know, you can see people start squirming in their seats and they cringe because what, what we realize is, oh, wait, like you're talking about the performance baggage that I want to minimize in my kids. I have that back. Like I, as an adult, still struggle with the pressure to perform at my job, in my home, in my relationships, everywhere. Everybody does. Everybody does. And and so parents get a little paralyzed because they feel like they're not equipped to help their kids lighten the load because their load is so heavy. Mm -hmm. And and, for people like that, I say go to counseling. I don't don't have a book for that. (laughs) I I can encourage you in some ways to help your kids lighten the load. But if that's you... Then, then deal with your baggage because we, we both know what it looks like when someone doesn't really deal with their baggage and they're in their 40s or 50s and it just kind of all comes spewing out. Mm-hmm. It's just never pretty. It's not pretty and it really makes for, I think, uh, an unhappy heart as they get older. You know, there's this whole thing about people have expressed, I want to live my life without regrets. And we all know that that's somewhat idealistic. We're all going to have some yes. levels of regrets. Well, what you're talking about with these bags are things that are avoidable. They don't all have to go through the same trials. That's right. You know, a friend of mine, it was a funny statement he used to say. He used to have this expression. He said, if you live by trial and error, the trouble with that is you make so many errors that they become trials. I, I love that. And I thought, you know, that's really true. How many of us actually live like, well, let's just see if this works. Yeah. You know, let's see if this insanity will work for me when it hasn't worked for anybody yeah, else. Yeah, right. And then it just kind of becomes a part of who we are. Yeah. And we don't even realize it. And we don't realize and it. And then we pass it on. Oh, yeah. that that's really true, my man. Yeah. And here's the other thing that's interesting about this. For about a year, I was thinking through and writing on this. And my wife, I, I would talk to her about it every now and then. And she would just kind of go, nah, interesting, nah. Not so interesting. What she was hearing me say was that, hey, as, as parents, we are the ones loading our kids up with all of this baggage. Mm-hmm. And her, her response was, who wants to talk about or read about that? Just how bad we are as parents. No, teachers pack bags, coaches pack bags, social media is packing bags, society's packing bags, peers are packing bags. But as parents, we are uniquely positioned to be able to pay attention to it if we'll actually step into doing that. So that's mm. what the book really hopefully helps parents do is see it from a different lens and, and not kind of gloss over some of the things that we think, oh, that'll be fine. What I'm realizing in, in the way that I'm dealing with you know teenagers, it's, it's not going to be fine. And one particular quote that a teenager did on a survey we just did a couple of weeks ago at our, at our church, they basically said someone has to tell these adults that we're going to crumble under this pressure if they don't do something. And so in some ways, and I had already written the book when I saw that quote, but that quote is kind of becoming a little bit of a rallying cry for me is mm. I, I tell the adults what's happening with these kids. Even though we kind of know it, we got to step into it deeper. That's really wise. I wonder what the reactions are by parents when they see this book, when they hear this message. Yeah. Well, anecdotally, I can tell you that the book released on March 15th, so it's only been out a little while. Um, and people that are reading it are, are really being gracious and saying it's really being helpful. I do think that um, it is opening sort of their eyes to what's going on in their own life in mm-hmm. some ways. And so it's almost like you have to deal with it on two levels. You have to deal with your own personal baggage and you have to kind of think about you know, your kid's baggage. But what I would encourage parents to do, whether it's through my book or whatever, is just have the courage to step into thinking about this and to understanding what it is that's going on 
with our kids and teenagers because, you know, as we talk about in the church world a lot, especially in the family ministry space, with the anxiety and depression that these kids are experiencing over and over again. I mean, I think bags is just one way to, to, to put some language around it. Yeah. But, but all this stuff that's going in their backpack, yeah. if you will, is what's contributing to that. You know, I think about the uh, whole Pilgrim's Progress image here of that backpack on Christian as he's walking down that road and he's loaded down and burdened down. And that bag is that you're talking about. It, we all have that bag. Yeah, sure. And, and the key is going to be, you know, how big is that bag? Right. How much stuff have we let happen? That's right. That, and how much stuff can we avoid putting in? Right, because what I believe is with my kids, if I can get them to their young adult years and that baggage isn't as heavy, they will have a better chance to live uh, the life in Christ that they have been created to live. Mm. They will have a, a kind of another level of freedom uh, at an early age. They'll have a peace that transcends understanding in their heart yeah. b- because they're they're just not carrying something so heavy. Now, can God redeem anything in the worst thing? Absolutely he can. Mm. But what if I can get my kids to their young adult years and they can just sort of take a breath instead of... Um, not be able to breathe. I love this. Chris Sasser's book, Bags, Helping Your Kids Lighten the Load. You know, years ago, Chris, I was uh, working at a radio station when we first moved to Orlando. Uh, I was working at a radio station, and one morning, probably about 6 a.m., I was doing the morning show back then. Uh, I, I was praying, and this image about cast your care. And in uh, the, the Lord did all of this just in a heartbeat in my mind. But I saw, for whatever reason, some of these big, like, uh, laundry bags. And I saw that it was like the Holy Spirit was having me gather the worries that were going on in my heart about my young family. And we had made the move. And there were some issues that we just needed to, to have taken care of financially. And we're like, Lord, this thing is... I just, and then that scripture came and I saw in my mind that laundry bag of just cramming everything into it, all of these worries and casting it at the Lord's oh, feet. That's great. And that's what parents can do yeah, with right. the bags that they're carrying. Totally agree. They can cast their bags away yeah. and then they can trust Jesus to lead them in helping their kids not pack such heavy bags. Man, I'm really glad you stopped by. Thank this you. is good stuff. Thank you. Wish you the best in all of this. Are you teaching a workshop here? I did. I did a breakout already on oh, this. Right. And so I have a chance just to talk to some people about it. And if, if anybody listening is interested in just learning a little bit more or getting the book, you can go to thebagsbook.com, uh, thebagsbook.com, or it's for sale on Amazon or D6 has it. It's it's in a couple different places. But I'm just hoping that it's, it's a helpful tool and resource for parents as they lead their kids. Sounds fantastic. Thank you. Chris Sasser, thank you very much. Thanks, Mike. And that about wraps up all of my time for today. Thanks again for joining me. We'll see you tomorrow right here on The Shepherd.